turn with me, if you will, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, between verses 10 through 16. I want to thank our music team and Miss Rachel for helping us set up for baptism, Joel, and all the people that helped us get ready for today. There's a lot. The greatest thing we can do today is hear from God. So let's look at his word in Titus 1, 10 through 16, continue our study in Titus. Yesterday I went outside to try to get some yard work done. We moved into our new house a couple months ago, and they had this nice landscaping. It's really, really cool, and I don't know anything about plants. Um, I know what a rose looks like after it's cut. <laughs> about sums it up. And so we got in, all stuff's growing. Like, I don't know what it is. And so you know, it's moving over here. Somebody's like, well, that's this and this, and that's that and that. And some people using, like, technical terms in Latin. You're like, is it a flower? Is it a tree? Is it a weed? Like, that's what I, th- this should be growing, this should not be growing. So something was growing, we didn't know what it was, and different opinions, it's brown cover, it's that, and it's here, and this, and then somebody pulled out a smartphone app, didn't know they had that, started taking pictures of it. That's a big weed. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, um, we did not catch said big weed at the early stage. So now the entire area looks like that weed. So then my wife went out to go pull it, and apparently it can make your arms break out in a rash, and we found out afterwards, there you go. Again, should have used the smartphone app. <laughs> that weed is not just bad for growing, although it grows really quick. So we, we you know, ground cover it is, because it's covering all the ground. And now we're trying to yank it out, and it's problematic. So I went out yesterday to try to just hack it back so we can spray it, because we tried spraying it, but it just stayed on top. This thing's awful. So trying to root out weeds. So if those of you that feel like you have a green thumb, you're welcome to come over and try your luck. But this idea of killing the weed at its root before it spreads, this is what we have here in Titus chapter 1. You're like, Pastor, did you just weed yesterday so you come up with that illustration? No, but as I was pulling weeds, like, oh, my soul, scrapping my previous introductions, this is it. This is, a, this is why we do what we do. So I don't have to do this in 90 degree heat. Word of the wise, you kill a weed when you find it. Word of the wise, you stop false teaching when you first hear it. Because it spreads and it spreads and it spreads and it kills. That's what we have here in our text today. And that's why we need, as we'll see from our text, we need faithful shepherds that will root out false teaching and will remind the church to live above the culture. We need faithful shepherds here at our church that will root out false teaching and remind the church to live above the culture. Look at our text here. Verse number 9, Paul said the church needs men that will hold to sound doctrine and will teach sound doctrine. Why? Verse number 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. 
They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Why should we teach first? Why should we teach sound doctrine? Why should we teach sound doctrine? Look at verse number 10 again. There are many, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. They must be silenced. We need shepherds in our church that will teach sound doctrine because false doctrine is being taught in our culture, in our day, and in our, in our age. And look at what Paul calls these guys. He says insubordinate. They're insubordinate. A faithful elder, as we saw from last week, 1, 5 through 9, is to hold firm to the word of God. In contrast, these, these men will not submit to God's word. They're empty talkers. They can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. They're deceivers. And this is a compound word that means mind misleader or understanding deceiver. These are people that would try to seduce or persuade the minds of others to do the wrong thing, to get their own way. At the end of verse 10, we see that many of these people are from the circumcision crowd. In Acts chapter 2, verse number 11, at Pentecost, when Peter was preaching, we find that there were people from Crete at Pentecost that heard the word of God. There were Cretans there. We don't know if these people went back and maybe they're speaking of Jesus, but were still trying to live the law as if that would earn them favor with God. We don't know what the reason was or, or how this got back or what the false teaching, what the process was for these men to get to the stage. We just know that it's a weed that started and it's infecting the church. And Paul says, you have to root this out. You have to stop these false teachers. And they were causing more harm than just harm to themselves. Look at verse number 11. They must be silenced. Why? They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. As I was pulling up the weeds yesterday, guess what inevitably happened as I was doing that? Because the weeds started being intertwined with some of the other plants. So in order to pull out the bad, guess what also happened to some of the good? It got yanked out as well. Well, that's what happens. It's impacting entire families, not just, not just one family. Multi so you can't just like call in two or three people and say, let's have a discussion. You know, this is kind of going the wrong direction. And this is upsetting families. This has generational impact. And unlike the elder above in 1, 5 through 9, who was hospitable, these men were destroying homes. Unlike the elder above, who in 1, 7 was not greedy, not to be greedy for shameful gain, these men were teaching for shameful gain. They're trying to make a profit off of it. Unlike the elder above in 1, 6 through 7, that's to be above reproach in his community. Right? They're not to act like the world around them. They are living just like the world around them. Look at verse number 12 again. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars and evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. The, these Cretans got this rap of being liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. And Paul says that's exactly who this crowd is. Now, before we move on, let me point out this quote because there's something you need to understand about this. This is an actual quote from an actual person that, that the Cretans considered to be a prophet. It's a 6th century author named Ep Epimenides. I don't know if I said that right. Didn't name my child after him. But Epimenides, 6th century Cretan prophet. One pastor noted that he, he went beyond just saying that they're evil beasts. He went beyond saying they're just liars. Listen to, listen to what he says. One pastor writes, Epimenides, Epimenides joked that the absence of wild beasts on the island was supplied by its human inhabitants. As for lady, lazy gluttons combining greed and sloth, their avar avarice was proverbial. 
So that Polybius could say, listen to his statement, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatsoever. There's nothing, Polybius says, and Epimelius says, there's nothing of value in these people at all. This is one of their own writing this. Can you imagine saying this about an entire group of people? Entire race. There's nothing good here. There's no redeeming value. In fact, there are two Greek words that you don't care to know. It's kratizo and kratismos. So Crete, and it's adding the ending, Crete, Crete, both of these, and they mean to lie or cheat, and the other, falsehood. The entire island in that day's culture had a word that was associated negatively as being liars. Everybody there, the whole group, the whole company. There are two things to note from this. First, Paul is clearly stating that the false teachers, you are li- they are living like the world around them. What Crete has been known for, that's what these guys are doing. They're just living like the culture expects them to live. Secondly, Paul believes that pastors and Christians are to live above their culture. Just because the culture says or does so does not mean that we can say or do so. We have to hold fast to the word as taught, as verse 9 says. That's why another reason why we need faithful shepherds that will root out false teaching and will remind the church to live above the culture. We're not to live like our culture, but to live above it, to live with that heavenly calling. So what must be done, secondly, to these false teachers? First, number 11, they must be silenced. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. What a good shepherd, a good elder, and a steward must do, they must silence these men. They must rebuke them. As we heard in our scripture reading today from Miss Sandy in Jeremiah 23, um, these men were detestable. In verse number 30, they're detestable to God. In verses 21 and 22 of Jeremiah 23, if you remember what Miss Sandy read, that she said, here's God speaking. He said, I did not send these false teachers, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, Yet they prophesy. They're not coming in my name. I did not send them. They're not speaking for me. These men are detestable in my sight. And that's the same exact thing that we have here in Titus 1. You have men that are speaking what God did not send you, and you're not speaking the things of the Lord. Paul says rebuke them. Now why is he to rebuke them? To prove that pastors and shepherds and stewards are always right. Do you, do you rebuke them so you can win the argument? Trump card. I win. Why should you rebuke them sharply? What is the end goal for the false teacher? What does he say in verse 13? Rebuke them sharply. Why, Paul? That they may be sound in the faith. So we're not trying to embarrass them. You're not trying to make fun of them. Your desire in rebuke is that they would end up being sound in the faith. That they would wholly follow the Lord their God. And they would only speak what He says. So any rebuke or correction is for the soul of the person that you are trying to help. It's not to prove that you are right. It's not to prove that you're on the right side. It's for their good. It's for their soul. 
That is the end goal of the, the soul of these teachers, that they would be sound in faith. To be sound in faith, they cannot then, verse 14, they cannot devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. These false teachers are stuck doing two things. They are following the Old Testament law as if it would earn them something. It will earn me either favor with God or it will earn me salvation. It's going to earn me something. We cannot earn our salvation. As we heard professed by three different people today, I believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not something that we earn. It's what God has done for us. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. Should we be doing good things? Yes, but because fa- faith without works is dead. But we do not save ourselves. We do not earn God's favor. Aren't you thankful you cannot earn God's favor? If you could earn God's favor, look at me, would you have it? If you could earn it, would you have it? If you had it, how quickly would it be lost? Yet he loves you still. If you are his Look at me. You have his favor now. Even if you came here, having lived the worst week of your life, mired in sin, you know him as Savior. He still favors you and would call you, come home. Turn to me. This is who our Savior is. We cannot earn our salvation, but that's what they're stuck trying to teach. Because we like to think we can do it. That's why we have to come humbly to the Savior. Second, they are following following people over God. They're following the commands of men. When we follow commands of men, trouble ensues. Paul drives the point home in verse 15 and 16. He writes, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and our conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This might recall to you an altercation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Listen to these verses from Luke 11, 37 through 40. Just listen to this text. When Jesus was speaking of Pharisees, religious leaders, if you don't know who Pharisees are, religious leader, religious elite. So he went in and reclined at the table, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner, as many mothers would have done, right? Okay, wash your hands. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, the religious elite, sorry, pause real quick, children, you cannot use this as an excuse when you get home, or some of you, I can already see it working, okay? So Jesus responds to them, said, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup. That's poor, that's poor cleaning. You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Purity does not come from the external. Growing up in a realm where the outside meant everything, where Christians judged each other based upon the length of their hair, how many permanent tattoos they have or don't have, if they had a ring or not in their ear. It's all external. This is purity. It's holiness. I'm living it out. Jesus looks at him and says, you're cleaning the wrong part of the cup. And you're trying to do the cleaning. You're 0 for 2, pal. 
You need me to clean the inside. Now, Jesus cleans the outside. Will something change externally? Absolutely. Because what's in a man is going to come out. The work he says, the attitudes, the behavior he or she displays will all change. But sometimes we wear the badge of honor that our external is better than others' externals, and we, we judge them. I'm better than you are because, well, look at me, and look at you. Jesus had his harshest words to the people that believe like that. It's not the outside that defiles you. We want to cloister ourselves away from the world, to hide ourselves from people that do naughty things. We're to stop shopping somewhere because of something they support or don't support, as if that's going to make you better. If you lived on an island by yourself, sin reigns on that island because it's in you. The moment you stepped on that uninhabited island, it became a problem and it needed a savior. Sin is in you. It impacts every cell you have. And it caused the death of the Son of God. The problem is not the external. The problem is inside. You have sin. You're full of it. And so am I. But there's a cure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want the inside clean? You come to the only one that can clean and heal. And it's Jesus. Friend, are you clean? Not do you look sharp. Not do you blend in with the church crowd. Is the inside of the cup clean? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Jesus is speaking of this, and he says, on the flip side, if you know him as your Savior, to the pure, all things are pure. Yet the focus is not on the Christian that realizes that God has granted him freedom in Christ Jesus. The focus is on the false teachers, these Pharisee types. They're defiled, and they're unbelieving. Calvin pointed out, and logically, if you were to go back to the Old Testament, anything and anyone in the Old Testament that's unclean, if an unclean person touches anything and anyone, what happens to the thing that the unclean person touches? That stuff becomes unclean. That's what was so amazing about Jesus, that when he came, the unclean person touched him, he did not become clean. They became clean. But Jesus is saying, the unclean, everything the unclean touched is defiled, and these people are wholly defiled because it's not just impacted the things they're touching with their fingers, but it's impacted their minds, impacting their conscience. They're wholly defiled. They profess, verse 16, to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. Unlike the elder above that's fit for the work, these people are unfit for the work. They claim to know him, words. But by the way they live, works, they do not. They're actions. A poll dated December 14th. 2021 showed that an estimated 63% of Americans claim to know Jesus. They profess to know him. That means that there are over 200 million people just in America alone that profess to know God. 
how many of these people do you think God would say, yes, they profess to know me, but they deny me by their works, by their actions? Sure, they profess to know me. I'm a Christian. But they deny me day in and day out by the way they live. Would God say that of you? I'm a Christian. Are you? Just by saying it doesn't make it true. Would God, looking into your soul, who knows if you are his or not, would he say, I know you, claim to know me, but you deny me each and every day. They profess to know me, but they deny me. These people are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These are the kind of false teachers that were hoodwinking the church in Crete. That's why it's so important to have faithful shepherds that can root this junk out. We need, at our church, faithful shepherds that will root out false teaching, will remind the church to live above the culture. So what does all this mean for us today? And what can we apply to our lives? First, friend, do you deny? Do you deny God by your actions? Do you deny God by your actions? Most people that show up at church today, and if you're here, most that are here would profess, I am a Christian. Maybe you're the exception. Maybe you showed up, and you're like, I'm an atheist. I just want to see what y'all are doing. Friend, you are welcome, but you're in the same crowd. You will stand before the Lord of glory. You will give an account. We welcome you. But do you deny God by your actions? And we have a text here I want to put up here, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says. Right? What are we talking about? False teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor diseased tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse number 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. They may profess to know. I know Jesus. Recognize by their fruits. Verse 21. For everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. We read that. Verse 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. That's hard to read. And friend, I I don't want to come across as we're trying to attack, push, or punish, but I, I have to. I have to, at the very least, be honest with you. There will be many on the last day when they stand before the Lord to give an account. They will claim, look at all I did for you. And Jesus said, you deny me by your actions day in and day out. I never knew you depart from me. You're like, well then, does my works save me? Absolutely not. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But it's easy to talk. I'm a Christian. Jesus professed that you are his. But when you come to Jesus, you give him your life. That means he takes full command and control of your spirit. 
You're no longer the captain. You're no longer a passenger. You are now a servant in his kingdom. We love him. We will keep his commandments. Friend, do you know this Savior? If you do, then we should expect to see you here Sunday after Sunday because you're not supposed to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because you obey. If you do, we should expect to see you longing for the word of God because as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. If you do, we should expect to see you praying on a regular basis. We should expect, we should expect to see you being hospitable one to another because these are commands that are clear cut in scripture for you to follow. How does the world know that you are his by how you love one another? How can you love one another when you're not here and you don't know what the needs of the others are? Do you profess to know Jesus? Does Jesus know you as his own? Those are two different things. I want to say that carefully, but I also want to be urgent with that. I don't want you to deceive yourself as these false teachers were doing. Friend, if it's just a mere profession, if it's just a mere, I claim to be a Christian, I beg you, come to the Savior today and give him life. Give him life. He loves you. You'll never regret it. Come to him. You do so by admitting that you, like I, that we are sinners, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Call on his name. Whosoever calls on the Lord will be saved. Give him your life today. If you have questions, I can do that. See myself, see a Christian friend who came with. I'd love to take you through that. For all those that claim to be Christian, let me ask you a couple questions first. I'd like to remind you of Titus 1.12. Like 1.12, Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul nails the false teachers who are living like the world around them. Christian, are you living like the world around you? Not the worst examples, are you living like the world around you? What do I mean by that? Grandma, grandpa, what's different between you as a believing Christian, that's a grandparent, and the grandparents that live across the street from you that do not know Jesus? Just wasting the day away, reading newspapers and watching westerns and working on knitting patterns? What are you doing? In what way is your life different from them other than you show up here on a Sunday? Is it wrong to read the newspaper? Is it wrong to knit? Is it wrong to go play golf? Absolutely not. How is your life any different than theirs? We are to live above the culture because our calling is a heavenly one. Our home is not here. Our retirement is not here. We're looking to the other side. Show us, Grandma and Grandpa, how to finish well. Show us how to be different than the culture around us, that this world is not what we live for. Mom and Dad, are you living like other parents in our area? Is your child's education in school and college more important than their attendance in church? Is it? You would rather them get all A's and get into a good school than to be here on a regular basis? Is your goal for them to get a scholarship? Is that more important than them being faithful? Where are your priorities? How are you different than the parents that live across the street from you other than you show up here? 
We're to be different. In what ways are you leading your child to be more like Jesus? Or perhaps are you just like any other parent in Rockford? Does that mean if you do these things that your kids will automatically always respond and obey in the right way? What is that? Yes or no? Any parent that's ever had a child, by you giving your kid correct instruction, do they automatically obey? No. Go down to, if you believe the opposite to be true, you're welcome to serve in the nursery for the next 10 years. We cannot force our children to believe. We cannot make them follow Jesus, but we must not also put hurdles in their path. You be, mom and dad, a good example of Jesus. You should be here all the time, and you should drag them with you until you can't drag them anymore. Love them, lead them, pray for them. You can't force it, can't make it, but live above the culture. Live for that heavenly calling. Young Marys, our singles and students, teenagers and younger, how are you any different than your young married friends or your classmates? When it comes to planning for your future, we talked to the teenagers about this a couple weeks ago. When it comes to planning your future, do you consider ministry at all? I was talking to teens a couple weeks ago from Acts 16 that Titus was, their Timothy was plucked out of his home. Like, would Paul have picked you out of the crowd? But what was it that made Timothy stand out? He was faithful. He had a good report in his area. Teenager. Single. Young Marys. How are you different than anybody else around you? In what ways are you living above the culture? Do you consider missions? Do you consider serving him? Or are you just trying to make big bucks like your pals? Question two. Let me ask you. Do you have a pharisaical view of your purity? Do you believe that you, do you truly believe that you're better than others because of the external? Do you believe you're better than others because of the rules you follow or because of your high standards? Last today, we learned of the foolish teachers that needed to be rebuked that they may be sound in the faith. How thankful are you that God can use others to confront us and help us turn to him? And again, that's why we need faithful shepherds that will root out false teaching and remind the church to live above the culture. But how thankful are you that God willingly receives also those that return to him? He receives us back. Just last night, I was reading to McKenna from that new Bible story book that we gave to the families. I don't know if you guys started reading through that. It's been a blessing in our home. Um, But we were reading about the Tower of Babel. And if you recall, the people at the Tower of Babel demonstrated great pride. And they were hoping that they could ascend to the heavens. And they could make it to the place of God. If you know the story, they, they, they they did not get there. They failed to reach the heavens with their tiny little building. In fact, God had to come down just to see it, to figure out what that thing was. Oh, oh, you're building a tower. I don't think you're going to get here. The author of the kids' book said on page 47, the nations had to give up their plans for a tower reaching into the heavens. And yet the God of the heaven hadn't given up on his plan to reach the nations. They were trying to reach up to be gods, and they realized they couldn't. And God said, you can't get here. You can't be like me that way. I will come to you. Christian, praise God that others can speak into your life and can confront you and can help you turn back. Praise God even more that when we do turn back, he's ready, open arms to save and redeem and comfort. God is still for the nations. Let's bow for the prayers we do. Let's take 30 seconds and let's ask, friend, 
Let's take our time. Christians, take our time. What would the Lord have you do? Praise the Lord that He is our Redeemer and He ever will be. But is He your Redeemer? Friend, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, would you come to Him today? If you're here and you do know Christ, would you think through these questions? Am I living like the world around me? Do I have a pharisaical view of my purity? Am I thankful that God can use others to speak in my life? Am I thankful that when I do repent that He receives me back? Take this moment, quiet our hearts, we'll sing your doxology and we'll let you go. Jesus, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the work that he accomplished on the cross. Thanks for the example we have today from baptism, Lord, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it should be our desire to live for you all our days. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.